This podcast is brought to you by Arc Facilities, providing instant mobile access to facility information for on-the-go teams. To learn more about our smart building technology, visit arcfacilities.com. And now, welcome to the Facility Voices podcast with your host, David Trask. Hi, I'm David Trask from Arc Facilities, and this is Facility Voices, the podcast that brings you real-world FM experiences from the front lines in the field. Our guest is Marshall McFarland. He's a facility services manager over at C3 Engineering in Chandler, Arizona. Marshall, welcome. Hey, good morning. Thanks a lot for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, absolutely. I'm really excited. You and I go way back. We've been involved with IFMA for a long time. I know you're heavily involved at the local chapter down in Arizona, but give us a little backstory on you. I've got a lot of mileage, so my whole story (laughs) would take up the 30 minutes. But, you know, I was born and raised in eastern Canada, so I have a hint of an accent sneaks through now and then. And then I, uh, I lived in northern Maine for a few years. I've been in Arizona around 27 years. Went to trade school, actually started in New Brunswick, Canada, then went to Maine, but I'm a millwright by trade, an industrial mechanic. And then I uh, moved to Arizona, worked for a tier two automotive plant, a metal stamping factory and became the uh, maintenance supervisor. Then I became the safety director. And at the time, I didn't know what a facilities manager was. So my boss wanted to promote me and I Googled uh, safety, environmental security and maintenance supervisor <laughs> found a facilities manager. So that's what I became. And for the next 15, 20 years or so, I was a facilities manager, finished out that plant. I took a brief five-year detour into electrical engineering, worked for the University of Arizona, managing a satellite campus there, their facilities and services. Then I did four years for the city of the town of Gilbert as their facilities manager and their parks manager at the time. And then I got uh, pulled back into electrical engineering. So here I am. (laughs) <laughs> well, well-rounded, that's for sure. I'd love to hear your journey. Gives you a lot of different perspectives. Yeah, it does. You know, I've been lucky enough to have actually had hands-on work in the old days, turning wrenches and climbing on machines. And uh, I've been in the private sector and the public sector. So I've joked that I'm a tweener, though. I think I'm too slow for the private sector and too fast for the public sector. So I don't quite fit <laughs> in either one. But yeah, and then as a facilities manager, of course, I've been lucky enough to work in a variety of environments and have have a pretty good range of perspectives. And, and, you know, particularly the University of Arizona and the town of Gilbert, I had a number of responsibilities that many facilities managers have, but probably a a bigger depth of knowledge. And that for the U of A at the biomedical campus downtown, I did a lot of emergency planning and then also uh, oversaw campus security as well. So have some good experience along the way. Well, I always say that the facilities folks, it's which hat are you wearing this second? Not even this minute. It's it's switches and and be able to pivot on a dime. That's for sure. Yeah, exactly. Lots of hats. Yeah, yeah. So tell us a little bit about your involvement with IFMA. I know that's where, where you and I actually first met. And, you know, tell us a little bit about some of the the national involvement as well as the local involvement that you've had with committees and councils and any other mentor type programs that you're involved with? Yeah, IFMA is a, a great organization. I've belonged for around 15 years. I've kind of come up through the ranks. My first spot was the programs committee chair where I, where I helped line up speakers. And I think just developed a knack there for which kind of will lead us back to where we are today. But 
not only what facilities managers wanted to hear, but what they need to hear. And you don't know what you don't know. So sometimes there's things out there that, that you need to know as a facilities manager that nobody's ever told you. Then became a VP in a chapter. Just finished. I did that for, I think, three years, four years. Just finished a two-year reign of terror as chapter president. And July, a new chapter president started. So now I'm the immediate past president of the chapter. As you mentioned, uh, IFMA launched a new military council that I'm part of. I'm a veteran. So uh, well, thank that, you for that your service. Me. Thank you. And then the facilities management consultant council that I've gotten involved in, and they've asked me to help get their associate members engaged in that council. So some council stuff and community stuff. And then today, I should have saved this maybe for your question at the end about accomplishments, but today... It's being announced officially that I'm in the 2023 induction of IFMA Fellows. Um, oh, congratulations. Oh, Goodness. So, what so an accomplishment. I'm pretty proud of it. There's only 134 in the world and had a lot of help along the way, and it's quite an achievement. So they're inducting the three new ones at World Workplaces here later oh, this month. Oh, that's amazing and couldn't be awarded to a better guy. I, I, I'm really, really happy for you, my friend. That's well, thank great. Thank you. I'm very appreciative. It was surprising, the process to go through. Uh, I can assure people that there's no, it's not an old boys network where you just, uh, it's not a popular, my, my application was, I think, 26 or 30 pages long. It goes through several screenings and it's quite a process. So yeah, I'd be remiss, I think, as chapter president, it was more challenging than I thought. It was more rewarding than I thought. And surprisingly, I loved working with our student chapter. I call them kids because I'm old, but those young professionals and young people, their enthusiasm and reverence for the profession and the members is just, it was astounding. And it was very rewarding working with our student chapter. Well, it's the next generation coming yeah. up. And I almost look like that's a higher calling to, to really do our best to help those folks that are coming up, those kids coming up that, uh, that are going to be the next leaders in the industry. Yeah. And the other, and I forgot to mention the Global Workforce Initiative through the IFMA Foundation and IFMA. I've been very involved with that locally. And as you know, or, or the listeners may not know, it's a global effort to fill the looming shortage of professional facilities managers in the pipeline. It's a younger profession and it's not one that, you know, guidance counselors in high schools aren't encouraging kids, hey, go be a facilities manager. Nobody knows what it is. So, a large percentage of facilities managers like myself are going to retire in the next 10 years. And it's leaving a big gap in the pipeline, uh, which is critical as buildings get more complex and, and more sophisticated and customer service becomes front and center, not turning wrenches. The days of the, the handiest guy schlepping around changing light bulbs is over. I mean, it's about customer service. It's about data. It's about sophistication. It's all those things. So and you're spot on. I mean, it's the next generation coming up that there is a big gap. It's not just the facilities managers, it's also skilled trades. And I think just understanding a lot of the intricacies that are involved in, in facilities management, it's a big deal. And I know when you and I uh, first talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and we were kind of brainstorming on ideas, you know, you brought up a great topic that I think a lot of folks just don't have an awareness of, and that is the NFPA or National Fire Protection Association 70. And for those in the audience who don't know what that is, you know, share a little bit about what that is and, and what it involves. Yeah, you know, even when I was a facilities manager, I had an awareness of NFPA 70E. And, and over the past few years, a lot of the 
what were considered best practices have become shells now. And why that's important is OSHA considers NFPA 70E a consensus standard. And and I was a safety director before I became a facilities manager, so I, this stuff's near and dear to my heart. But, you know, there's a misconception out there that OSHA certifies things, for example. And probably the easiest way I can put it is people will say, hey, Home Depot selling OSHA certified ladders. Well, OSHA doesn't certify ladders. They refer to ANSI, which produces a set of standards. And if they meet ANSI's standards, they meet OSHA requirements for safe ladder. So it's very similar with electrical safety. So NFPA 70E, which used to be recommendations have in the past, I think since 2019, have now become shall. So de facto, if you want to make that connection, that the OSHA requirements for electrical safety in detail are found in NFPA 70E. So violating those is the same as, you know, violating an OSHA standard. And NFPA 70B refers with some specificity to electrical maintenance. And, you know, as a facilities manager, it's always been a little shocking to me that people wouldn't dream of not doing PM on chillers or air conditioners, but haven't touched their electrical gear in 25 years. And I'll say, well, which is going to cause more grief in your life, whether a single air conditioning unit goes down or your chiller or your main SES to your whole campus? And the good and bad thing is for facilities managers is that requirement for maintenance has also now become a requirement and not a best practice. So uh, there's a requirement to NFPA 70 E and B list out all the requirements associated with electrical safety. Well, you know, it's interesting because I travel around the country and I do a bunch of site walks at different types of organizations, you know, hospitals or schools or, or what have you. And, and I see a mixed bag of old versus new, you know, like a core of a hospital that was built, you know, 60 years ago, 70 years ago, and then all the different wings. And I think a lot of orgs don't consider what is that impact when you've got the old and the new and that mixed bag, you know, of what's within a facility. And I think you're right. I really think that the organizations don't put the emphasis on the infrastructure part of their electrical systems as much as they do that chiller or that AHU that's on the roof. So talk a little bit about you know, what you feel is the important things or the importance of NFPA 70 and the, to facilities managers, property managers, and building owners. Yeah. And, you know, first off, I think they need to understand, and most facilities managers and building managers and property owners that I know would never knowingly let an OSHA violation exist, right? And and Sure. And I did the air quotes thing there, but, uh, but they aren't aware of the electrical ones. And that's kind of the minefield there is that, and there's evidence and not just anecdotal, but documented, you know, you can document and demonstrate this kind of chain of regulation to people where OSHA points to NFPA 70 and NFPA 70 says XYZ, there's requirements for safety and not fulfilling that is essentially the same as you know, any other OSHA violation that you could have. And that's kind of the minefield out there is that if you don't enforce this stuff and, you know, heaven forbid you have an injury or, or an event at your site, now OSHA can enforce that as such. And obviously there's a liability there as well. So it's critically important, I think, for people in authority over building management like that need to understand that relationship. And one of the things that the NFPA has said now is that 
it's not just the building owners that can be held liable but or are responsible. It's the building representatives. So as a facilities manager, you know, you can't just say, hey, well, I asked them and they said we couldn't do it. I mean, there's a <laughs> or it's too expensive. If I was in that situation, I would certainly not to get anybody in trouble, but I would certainly have that documented somehow that, hey, this was presented. And for whatever reason, the same way as, hey, you know, if the company said, hey, we're not going to provide steel toed boots or safety glasses or, you know, it's kind of the same flavor. So I would certainly make sure that your company's aware of the requirements and that as a facilities manager, certainly you're aware of the requirements. So what are some of the tips you can provide to bring those buildings up to the current standards? Or, you know, what are some of the whammies, the hidden stuff that you typically would see that that are potentially in violation? Yeah. So and the good thing is, you know, once you kind of hear the gospel or hear the message, it's really easy to, to tell whether you're reading that or not. And we have a, a six point compliance checklist that we share with people. And I'm sure other companies do the same thing. I'm happy those kind of things are out there. But the easy thing is go look at your electrical gear. I mean, even down to breaker panels, again, by requirement now, they have to have a label on them demonstrating the incident energy levels and the PPE of that gear. So if you go out to your equipment and it doesn't have a label on it, you're in violation. So that's the first thing I think people need to understand. So, you know, the purpose of an arc flash hazard analysis, which, you know, people call an arc flash study, is it, it basically quantifies what kind of explosion would occur if there was an incident in that bucket or that switchgear or whatever. So the reason that's important is if, as an organization, you meet the requirements to work on energized gear, and most of us have, rightly or wrongly, or it was different 10 years ago. But if you even troubleshooting, if you want to open up, say, a fuse disconnect to check for voltage because you have a motor bed or a VFD or whatever, you don't know what PPE is required for that if you don't have an arc flash label on that bucket. So that's why those are important. And then to your point about old buildings and old mixed with new, the requirement now is that you verify or update that arc flash hazard analysis every five years or when you make a major change to your system. So now again, it's a requirement. If you add another circuit or line or add a new piece of equipment, or just, you know, through age, every five years, you need to update your arc flash hazard analysis. The other thing is, is you need to demonstrate that you're doing electrical maintenance per the manufacturer's requirements. So if if I say to you, or you say to yourself, hey, what are you doing for electrical PM? When you say we aren't, then, Technically, you're not in compliance. And there's a number of trade organizations that stipulate those requirements. They're easy to find. Uh, ANSI has them. IEEE has them. NIDA has them. And then also NFPA will demonstrate those as well. So uh, you use the industry standards and then combine with the manufacturer's recommendations to do that PM. One of the things, you know, in this kind of facilities role that I'm working on, I've been lucky enough in my career to take over a number of new buildings. Uh, I've worked on the construction project and taken over the building. For at least the first two years, that turnover manual, and I know it's not a manual anymore, it's a, it's a, it's a thumb drive or a hard drive, <laughs> is our Bible the first couple of years because we don't want to void the warranty on anything. So it'll say even how to take care of the floors, what chemicals to use on the bathroom tile. It'll say how to maintain the chiller, how to maintain glass fixture, everything except I can almost guarantee there isn't anything in there about electrical preventive maintenance. There hasn't been, there wasn't, and probably unless something's changed in the last 
eight months, <laughs> probably nothing in there. There might be a cut sheet on the SES or something like that, but there's no PM requirements and they do exist. So I'm trying to work with general contractors now and say, hey, this information is available. Let me put it in. I'll put it in your turnover manual for you. I'll send me a list of what equipment was installed. I'll say, here's the NIDA or the IEEE recommendations for maintenance. Stay in your manual. No cost to you. No cost to me. It's just a service. And just to get that education out there. Because as a facilities manager, I don't want to know. I trust the vendors or trust the general contractor in a new building to provide this information. And it's a bit of a disservice if they're not given that information. Well, you know, you bring up a really, really good point. And it's with regards to do organizations consider panels or switch gears or even transformers as equipment? And, you know, in a lot of the organizations that I talk to, it's kind of a mixed bag. It's, do we even include that item as a, a line item in my PM scheduling? Is it even on my radar? Most of the time when I'm out, and I've seen this, I'm sure you've seen this, and, and the audience has seen this as well, that you walk into a, an electrical room and half the panels aren't labeled. And then you open up the door and there's no panel schedule. Or if it is, it's handwritten and you can't read it anyway. And that's a challenge because, you know, I'm, I'm a firm believer. You don't know what you don't know, but you also, it's not going to help you when something's going sideways and, you know, you've got to find that panel to shut something off. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think part of my goal as a facilities manager, not even working for C3 Engineering, is to educate people on, on exactly that kind of stuff. You know, you had a great post this morning about valves and how to treat valves. You know, we had uh, one incident on, on campus one time. We had a flood at night. We couldn't get the main branch gate valve shut. So <laughs> the next day, we identified all those major valves and made them assets and put them on a PM plan to be exercised at least once a year. So yeah. I think part of it's, you know, just like you said, education. And anything that can fail and cause you grief or hurt somebody or is expensive to replace should probably be an asset. If it's part of your infrastructure, then it needs to be an asset. And I think that's just best practice. I agree. I 100% agree because knowledge is our friend. You know, it's not the enemy. And the more we know about our buildings, we know about our sites, the better. You know, talk a little bit about the major differences between the 2023 version of NFPA 70 and the previous version. Yeah, luckily, most of the differences are verbiage. And there's some nice summaries out there now of that. Obviously, all the consultants and everything, once a new version of anything comes out, they kind of we're all lazy and or busy and they kind of summarize the changes. A lot of them are administrative in nature and, and changing definitions. It put more requirement in some of the shalls as opposed to recommended. There's one that, for example, it used to be leather gloves over your insulated gloves. Well, now there's materials other than leather that are non-conductive and will protect your rubber gloves. So they they struck leather, and, and now it has to be another material that's suitable for protection. So, so a lot of, I would say, minor changes and not many significant changes. But, but again, people really need to go through that. And there's some things that changed from should to shalls. And there's some different tabular data that's changed now. There's a manual way to, to consider incident energy levels. They've included a DC table now because of the advent of, of big battery banks and UPSs and that kind of thing. So, so there's some DC voltage information in there now. But yeah, they really need to. And there's all kinds of 
companies and consultants around that can help people find that information. But I think the big thing is to get on any version of the NFPA 70. You know, if they're on the previous version, that they'd probably be farther ahead than none at all. But luckily, there wasn't any huge that I've uncovered yet, at least huge game changing changes from this version to the last. Gotcha. I'm like you when you mentioned earlier that, you know, we're all learning and I'm a firm believer we all learn from each other. And and that's the goal of these podcasts, too, is what I was excited to get this started several months ago was essentially I want everybody to walk away with some nuggets, you know, some things to make them think and some things that they might be able to put into practice, you know, today at their sites. And one of the things, you know, that I always ask folks is knowing what you just said, hearing what you just said. If I'm a a listener, what do I do now? Yeah, either you dig in and learn it yourself or you talk to somebody who knows. You get somebody, you know, that has a compliance checklist or if you just want a a gross quality control check, walk out into your electrical room and look for label, arc flash labels on every piece of equipment that are five years old or less. And then as a facilities manager or maintenance supervisor, you should know offhand if you're doing any kind of electrical preventive maintenance that you can demonstrate and it's like any other pm you know if you have a new chiller and there's a 20-year or 10-year warranty on whatever the warranty period is and something happens and they say have you been doing the preventive maintenance on it you can't just say yes you need to demonstrate that you need to be able to demonstrate that you have an electrical preventive maintenance program so you need maintenance records or you need those kinds of things to say that so based on the manufacturer's recommendations So you mentioned that there were some checklists and things available. Where are some places or what are some resources that people could reach out and access information about NFPA 70 and just the NFPA website? Or are there other resources you'd recommend? Yeah, I mean, the easiest one is the NFPA website. Unfortunately, they're going to charge you for the full versions of those standards. But if you just Google NFPA 70E information, there's all kinds of companies that specialize in safety and compliance that can help you out. Get to a local engineering firm that can do arc flash hazard analysis. Again, doing it once isn't enough. And if you add equipment, you got to do it. It's like anything else. So the internet's a wonderful thing now, and we can Google things, and we all have probably in our own communities resources that we can do that. But start with NFPA 70. NETA is another good one, NETA, National Electrical testing association. So that has some good information as well. That's great. And you mentioned that you guys have a checklist. You said a six-point checklist. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's a six-point compliance checklist. It's easy. I'm happy to provide that to anybody who asked for it or any companies that asked for it, any individuals. And it's, it's really easy. And we cite the NFPA requirements at the bottom so that you can see, hey, is this real or not? And then that can take you kind of down that rabbit hole. Really? Do you really have to do that? And then you can go look up the, the NFPA 70 information yourself. So That's a great resource. I appreciate you sharing that. Let's get into a couple of our rapid fire questions here. And you shared a big success story, obviously, and that was a personal success story. You know, give me a couple other success stories that you're really proud of that you've seen that are also possibly related to NFPA 70. One of the things we do, you know, it's been a good resource for people. Everyone's dealt with supply chain issues. As people are quoting, say, big renovations or rebuilds or or even new buildings, and they're seeing 40, 50, 60-week lead times on stuff or 
astronomical amounts of money compared to what they were two years ago, you know, through testing and relabeling, we can look at that equipment and test the heck out of it. You know, if we get a lot where people drag an old one up out of a warehouse or something or, or it's old and faded, you know, you can test those. Uh, and if you have to, you can relabel them. If you make any modifications to them and save yourself a, a tremendous amount of money and knock off the lead time. So that's a great, you know, we've had some of those that were great professional success stories. You know, I think just educating people, I think I have a teacher's heart and I like, I like doing public credit. As much as I tell people I'm an introvert, I like talking about, you know, educational things. So I, I like doing presentations and, and doing things like this. So I just like helping other facilities professionals and knowing that this stuff is tied to efficiencies and bottom lines and safety. It's just rewarding to me. And I can tell, I mean, it's obvious that you have a passion for helping people too. And this is a big point. I think this is, you know, anything that touches your building, but more importantly, safety is a win. And I think your educator heart is, is truly coming out. And I appreciate you sharing what you have. Tell me, you know, I always like to have a closing funny and it's, it's what's the craziest thing that you've ever been asked to do either in, with regards to this or something else in the facilities. Tell us a little bit of a, a funny, crazy request that you've got in your career. A lot of the funny ones are just, as we discussed offline, you know, I managed a satellite campus of the U of A and a lot of those were just, I'll call them procedural and cultural differences in how they did things at main campus versus and there was some pretty interesting dynamics there and kind of funny things. But I, but I think for one that I'll say out loud for everybody, uh, so, I don't, so I don't rub anyone the wrong way. You know, when we were a new campus at the university, we have a part of the role is a medical school. And part of that role is they use donors or, or cadavers, as you will, to train medical students. And as a new medical school, they didn't have anybody to help move cadavers when the when the cadaver company got there to deliver them for our gross anatomy lab. So that was something that myself and my staff was asked to do. And, and I don't think anybody thought that they would be moving cadavers. I don't know, it was <laughs> funny, but it was certainly, certainly an interesting thing that we never expected to be doing. Well, I'm sure that wasn't in the job description. No, that's, that was in the other duties as required. Part, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those other hats that we talked about earlier. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Marshall, I really appreciate it. And thank you again for sharing the information you have today. And I look forward to seeing everybody on the next episode of Facility Voices. Thank you. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate you having me. Thanks for tuning in to Facility Voices, a podcast that explores the big issues and challenges facing the facility management industry today. We welcome your feedback, ideas, and suggestions for topics and guests. Send an email to communications at arcfacilities.com or reach out to our host, David Trask, on LinkedIn. Facility Voices is brought to you by Arc Facilities. Arc Facilities.